Welcome back to Talk Evidence, your now weekly look at the world of evidence and especially around coronavirus, COVID-19. Last week we talked about pneumonia and testing uh, and this week we've got even more for you. As always we've got our starts and stops uh, and we've got some information on treatment, on chloroquinine or hydroxychloroquinine and uh, maybe something on diagnostic and prognostic modelling uh, and then lastly we are going to be talking about PPE again. As always we're joined by our two favourite EBM nuts. I've got Helen McDonald and Carl Hennigan here. Helen can I get you to introduce yourself? Hi I'm Helen McDonald, UK Research Editor at the BMJ. And Carl. Hi I'm Carl Hennigan, I'm Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford and Editor-in-Chief of BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine. And I realise I keep forgetting to introduce myself. I'm Duncan Jarvis, a <laughs> multimedia editor here at the BMJ. With a very um, relaxing voice. Thank you. It's, uh, yeah, from being horizontal so much at home. So, uh, as I said, uh, last week we talked about pneumonia a little bit, and Carl, it seems like NICE have uh, paid attention to what you were saying. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. I think what we've seen now is a lot more organisations coming to the table, if you like, and ramping up the evidence and production of evidence. And so we've seen very helpful guidance come out from uh, NICE on managing and keeping patients in the community, and particularly the helpful advice about viral and bacterial pneumonia and what to do. And I think what we'll do is it'll be helpful to put the link to that at the end of the, uh, on the page for the, for the podcast today. And we'll do that so everyone can access that. Um, great. So, as always, uh, every week we try and do a start and a stop and uh, continuing that uh, in this new coronavirus world. So, the question that I've been wondering about is chloroquinine or hydroxychloroquinine? We've seen Trump really pushing this um, and that's led to, uh, to, to some problems. India, which is one of the large producers, first stopped uh, export and now they've they've allowed that to happen again but it just seems like there is a lot happening around this drug and and lots of uncertain evidence um helen you've been having a look at this i have and i think my my headline message is don't get your hopes up about these drugs as you said there's been lots of enthusiasm and i think that's probably all we need to say on that so we really wanted to try and get uh, behind the hype, would it be fair to call it hype? Um, I called a long-term friend of the BMJ, clinical pharmacologist Robin Ferner in Birmingham, who is in isolation like us all, but together with Jeff Aronson at the University of Oxford, they have um, been looking into the evidence uh, for hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine in COVID-19. I'm Robin Ferner. I'm an honorary consultant physician and clinical pharmacologist in Birmingham and honorary professor of clinical pharmacology at the University of Birmingham. Uh, well, they're closely related. Hydroxychloroquine is a derivative of chloroquine, a, a chemically um, similar structure, and uh, as far as we know, has very similar actions. Chloroquine has been used since the Second World War to prevent and to treat malaria and uh, it's still used to treat some forms of malaria 
hydroxychloroquine is used by rheumatologists to um, damp down inflammation in rheumatoid arthritis. And I think actually the anti-inflammatory action is secondary in importance. And the most important logic, insofar as there is logic, is that chloroquine upsets the way in which viruses get into cells and it upsets the way in which they reproduce inside cells. In COVID-19, the evidence base is really very, very fragile. There are, in the public domain, the results of four poorly conducted trials, two of which produced positive results and a great deal of excitement, and two of which were negative. These are very slim pickings. Well, uh, my colleague Jeff Aronson has looked uh, at up-to-date trial registers and found over 80 trials which mention chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine in the treatment of COVID-19. The problem is very few of these are well-designed trials which are sufficiently large to give a clear result. But there are at least three trials in England at the moment, one in general practice, one in hospital short of intensive care, and one in intensive care, which are looking at medicines for treating COVID-19. And the recovery trial, which is one I'm most familiar with, includes hydroxychloroquine as one of the test agents. That's already recruited more than a thousand patients and uh, in due course should give a reliable answer, months or years, I think, rather than a definite answer within weeks, I'm sad to say. Well, there are two different uses for chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine. In India, the government has proposed that those who are at high risk of getting COVID-19, for example, healthcare workers, might take chloroquine once a week uh, in the hope of preventing the virus from taking hold. Well, that's very similar to the dosing that's used to prevent malaria or was used to prevent malaria. And the risks of that are quite well known. At the other extreme, we know that very large overdoses of chloroquine are extremely toxic. So when patients take 20 tablets, many unfortunately die. In between, there is the acute treatment that's been suggested, particularly in France, for COVID-19, which involves the administration of six grams of chloroquine over 10 days. And that's a fair amount and is likely to cause much more in the way of adverse effects than the rather small once-weekly dose that's taken to try to prevent the infection. So uh, the most common adverse effect of chloroquine and of hydroxychloroquine is gastrointestinal upset diarrhea and vomiting, if you like, or at any rate, nausea. Uh, but on top of that, uh, from time to time, there are cases of bone marrow failure. Higher doses cause people uh, to become uh, disoriented and even psychotic. And a particular worry in this context is that in combination with other drugs, Chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine can alter the way in which the heart rhythm works and produce what in technical terms is called QT prolongation. I looked at the historical context. So people had high hopes for chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine in a whole series of virus infections. By way of example, there was a large trial to see whether it prevented influenza in over 1,500 people, and there's no evidence that it does. It seems 
to have slight effects in HIV, but of course there are much better drugs. And in some infections, it almost certainly makes things worse. So the historical perspective doesn't make me optimistic, as there are drugs uh, that interfere with the replication of viruses that depend on RNA, like SARS-CoV-2. One of these is the new drug Remdesivir, which is subject to a trial and which seems a good deal more promising than these old drugs like chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. Yes, I think there were two things that I thought about after I spoke to um, Robin. One was just around the general politicisation and hype around some of these um, drugs and, and potentially the harm that that might cause for people who, who might take either of these medications for other reasons. Um, and the impact on the availability of those medicines for those populations of people. Carl, what did you think? Well, there are, you know, uh, listeners to this podcast will know I'm tortured by bias. And one of the the most read pages on our catalogue of bias is hot stuff bias. When a topic is fashionable, hot, investigators may be less critical in their approach to their research and investigators and editors may not be able to resist the temptation to publish the results. Chloroquining is right in the hot stuff bias. And it's really important and, and very interesting that we understand what's going on. And this will be a seminal case where we'll start to understand how everybody got on the sort of bandwagon because a little bit of evidence in vivo appeared. And from there, we had a small trial where that was so flawed, it should have never got published, should have been assigned to the bin. And what Robin's alluding to is, oh boy, do we need these proper trials done well. But the problem is, is if you go into some places like China, you can't do it now because their pandemic's over. So you have to be prepared and do it well. The second point I wanted to make is, um, I've been in contact with a colleague of mine, Tom Jefferson, who probably has done the most systematic reviews on influenza, respiratory infections and antivirals in the world. And he uh, pointed to me to a review that was actually uh, stopped in 2001, which was about looking at treatments for the common cold. Believe it or not, there used to be a Medical Research Council's common cold unit in the UK that ran over a thousand studies between 1946 and 89. And then we shelved all that research because of issues like HIV and other emerging diseases. So I think there's lots to be learned in looking backwards, trying to look at some of the treatments that have been used before and then ensuring we properly trial them. It was disappointing to hear from Robin um, how many of the studies that he and Jeff found on the register looked like they would generate... um, perhaps poor quality evidence, small studies that were not going to give us a very clear answer. Um, And to think that there could be sort of waste going on at a time when people are very busy. I'm not even sure this is waste. waste. I have uh, serious concerns about a lot of the research that is being published at the moment, how much we can trust it, how much we can verify the results. And people only have to look at what's happening with the antibody tests in diagnostics, where we're getting over 100 tests emerging from different manufacturers, and much of them are not working when you verify them in your own population. This is a serious, serious problem that needs to be assorted 
it's almost like you need a license to be able to do research and then you have to act according to good clinical practice to be able to do the right things at the right time. Unfortunately, many parts of the world are not uh, conforming to these standards. And for me, this is a huge disappointment. But the, the important thing is it's, it means we are still in a position halfway through this pandemic Nobody has a clue really about any treatment that could work. And we've said this last week is a systematic approach with good clinical practice and the right research done in the right way could help us. What's happening at the moment is, is adding to the disaster. Now, talking about um, evidence, online on the BMJ uh, we have just published another systematic review, um, this time looking at diagnostic and prognostic models. Uh, and they very much have found the same thing. Um, Helen, you spoke to them about this, uh, the, the sort of evidence that they've managed to find. Yeah, we talked back, I think, in our first uh, COVID podcast, which I think was in February, about the blank canvas of um, evidence that we currently had on the virus and um, the illness COVID-19. And a lot of information has now been thrown at that canvas very quickly. Um, and we've talked quite a bit about descriptive uh, papers and, for example, case series that have come out looking at people with varying severity of COVID-19 and looking back to describe their characteristics. Um, and we've learned things like um, more severe cases have been older people, have been men from people with cardiac disease. But we haven't discussed much looking forwards um, and, and seen sort of prognostic research where you might look at a variable or risk factor um, and assess the influence of that on the outcome. And that would seem to be useful to those who might need to be making policies around how to offer escalation of care into hospital or into intensive care units, particularly when resources are scarce. So the research team were really interested to get this fast track paper in. Um, which was a systematic review and critical appraisal of prediction models for diagnosis and prognosis in COVID-19. And a few days ago, I spoke with Laura Wyants and Martin van Smeden, two of its key authors. Um, so let's hear from them. I'm uh, Laura Weynans. I work in the Netherlands at Maastricht University. Uh, we are not medical doctors. We are uh, statisticians by training and we mostly work in the field of prediction modeling, so diagnostic and prognostic models. Hi, I'm uh, Maarten van Smede. I'm from uh, the University Medical Center of Utrecht, also in the Netherlands. I'm, I'm working on uh, diagnostic and prognostic uh, prediction models. I was on, on holiday. I was enjoying a very nice holiday. And before I left, um, there was no talk of COVID in Europe. It was something that happened far away. And right when I got back home, the first cases started appearing in Belgium and in our neighboring countries. And my anxieties sort of grew with the news that was coming in and what I was seeing on Twitter. And then at one point, one morning, I remember very clearly, I saw a tweet of someone trying to build a prediction model or proposing to build a prediction model for COVID. And all alarm bells in my head started going off because I saw so many problems. And that is how this project actually got started. Then I contacted Maarten and that's where, we, uh, that's where it took off. Yeah, so I was contacted by uh, Laura and uh, I, uh, I had the same feeling uh, looking at uh, the literature and uh, looking at social media that uh, 
um, I saw a lot of badly developed uh, prediction models. Um, in general, when we build a prediction model, we usually like consecutive series um, of patients. So people who are, for a diagnostic model, people who are suspected of having the disease. And it should reflect really the, the situation in which you are going to apply your diagnostic model. So as soon as you get into a case control sampling or these, just these case series for, for building a diagnostic or prognostic model, that, that won't work. Another thing is that you need a lot of data. So the case control, it could work, but you would need to have to adjust in a statistical way for the fact that you use case control sampling. And then still you would need representative controls. They cannot be controls from before the outbreak or from healthy people. So it brings uh, a lot of complex issues. The fact that we don't have good quality data yet, or we, we didn't at the time that these models were uh, developed, um, that's where a lot of the problems we saw have uh, arisen. Well, the first thing that struck us was that there's a lot of models out there already. So if we have 27 models identified and uh, the most important finding, unfortunately, was that they were all at high risk of bias. So that means that they are not ready to be applied in practice yet. And that risk of bias comes from all sorts of problems, including uh, non-consecutive patients or, or patient series that are not representative of the tar target population, and also the too complex modeling and too small data sets. Another thing that should be stressed is um, the need for rigorous validation. Um, we realize that when you build models like this, it may not always be possible to validate them externally, but still then, if you have developed a model, you cannot just test it uh, in the data set that was used to build it. You need to bootstrap validation or cross-validation or leave center out cross-validation um, to have a good indication of how well this model would work if you would apply it in new patients. With respect to validation, it's also important that research report their model. Um, so, for example, give the full equation behind the model or provide a software object. And we have seen that 10 out of the 27 studies that we included didn't do that. So that means that other researchers have no way of testing in their data whether that model works. Or if you want to apply it in hospital software, there's no way of doing it because the model is not reported anywhere. So that's also one of the key findings. Reporting was not good enough. Well, most of the models we saw were built on data from China. And um, that's a complicated factor because their admission and testing criteria and their uh, discharge criteria are completely different than in our healthcare systems. And in general, if you transport models from one healthcare system to the next, we know from prediction research that often won't work. You get miscalibrated predictions. So you overestimate the event of uh, the probability of mortality, for example, or you underestimate it. So always in such a case, you need independent validation on data from that healthcare setting and often also updating it, adjusting it to that healthcare setting. And especially for these studies where the risk of bias was so high, that would be crucial. I don't think any of these models can just be directly applied into practice as they are right now. 
So one thing that we've asked uh, Laura and Martin to do is to keep updating this systematic review for us. Um, And one of the things I wanted to talk a little bit about is innovation in journals. Journals feel like a bit of a stuffy old place at times. Um, But we've been increasingly thinking about how we can make uh, the evidence that we publish a little bit more live. I don't know yet that we're going to be able to create this as a living systematic review, but we're going to give it a go. There's quite a few technical challenges, um, but we're going to work on it over the coming weeks and months. And maybe we'll come back um, to Laura and Martin and hear if um, there is any success in terms of uh, creating some models or uh, spotting some new ones out there. Can I come in on this point? Because it's incredibly important. Uh, We've realised there's a massive oversight in the architecture of evidence-based medicine. Let's put aside diagnostic and prediction rules. What about all these models that are coming out? There are over 60 now, and there are huge structural problems with them. They never refer to each other and say, in the context of this other model. So there's no systematic review approach. They don't update on a daily basis. They don't derive the data and then validate it. And you'd expect them to be living structures. Because what they want to do is say, we've derived this model, and now we're going to test it for the next four or five days with data as it emerges to see how stable it is. And if it's still changing, then you go, we can't use it. But they publish it and go, here it is, here the truth, and spend all of their time defending it. So out of this, we are going to produce a new structure for how mathematical models fit into the architecture of EBM. Anybody who wants to join on that? It'd be great to hear from you because it's a huge issue now. You're starting this, Carl, are you? Yeah, we're starting it because we put so much weight on a single model and yet daily all the data is changing, isn't it? How on earth do you end up joining models together like that? Well, you don't. It should be a live platform. It shouldn't be a static production and saying, here's our model. Once you've got the input to the model, you can produce outputs on a daily basis with updated data. And you can keep producing that. And what you want to see is how stable it looks. And if it's not stable, for instance, the estimates are changing significantly on a daily de- basis. So one day you've got 50,000 deaths, the next day you've got 20,000. You know you've got a problem. And so you can't publish it at that point, but you can produce the information. That's a classic example of where we need a radically different approach. We're being quite radical this week. I think it's really interesting about prediction rules. We have to understand what they're really useful for. What are they useful for? Well, what they're useful for is communicating information across different systems. So, for instance, let's take the news score, which is a score you use to try and say, what's the chances of you're in primary care and I'm speaking to an ambulance driver and I'm trying to say, I'm worried about this patient, I think they're going to die. He can't see the patient. He doesn't know who I am, doesn't trust me. Mine never spoke to me. Might think it's my first day on the job and I'm having to convince him. Now, when I'm talking to a colleague of mine who's just as experienced, I can have a discussion that sort of communicates that information. But sometimes I've got to parcel it right down and go, this person's new score is six. And in this situation, the person goes, oh, they're at high risk of death. I better send an ambulance in the next 10 minutes. That's what they're useful for. I am going to put that out there for the actual initial decision of what to do they're not as useful because that's where you've got to take in the range of clinical experience expertise and experience you've got to take in the range of patients there isn't a one-size-fits-all here is there 
can't just produce a single score for a 95-year-old and a 60-year-old and one in a nursing home and one at home. So radically different. What's really interesting to me is what I find the most useful information is what's changing. And we've seen that within COVID is. It's not just the number there. It's what's happening over a period of time. So it, it, you might have saturations of 94% and that might be incredibly important if you started at 100 baseline and you've been going for five or six days trending down and you're getting really tired and you're getting confused. But in somebody who's 95, who their sats are 94 all the time, you might go, well, actually, that's just what they are. And that's where they are. And actually, you wouldn't act on that person. And so that's the problem with a one-size-fits-all But do you think some of those role. models are less to predict for individuals and more to inform policy decisions, perhaps around escalation of care, looking at how likely you are to benefit from admission to hospital or the use of a particular intervention to try and sort of modify your outcome? Well, let's take the biggest disease in the world, cardiovascular disease, where we've done the most evidence and the most prediction rules and looked at in so many ways. They're very interesting. But there's no evidence to show that if you use prediction rules, A, that they actually predict the people who actually have the disease, and B, using them improves overall mortality. And I think you have to remember these sorts of things when you're trying to go, actually, if we just say, take this model and ship all these people in, as that, is that what you're actually going to do? Well, then you work out, why do we have doctors? Why do we have any in the process? They're not the decision-making tool. They are the communicating tool that allow us. So when I use this new score, it's I've used it because I've already made my decision about this patient needs to go in hospital. I'm using my clinical skills, other information, where we are. And you're right. And what you want to know is, is this person likely to benefit from the next piece of management? Now, Where's the evidence for that? There is none, is there? So it's not just the prediction rule. You're talking about using the prediction rule in terms of a trial where you assess the management. Really difficult to do. Um, this is where we can get in a bit of a mess in healthcare because it's going to be incredibly difficult to have rules for the varied population that are affected from this disease. So what's our message from this, I think, is that we have to be very wary of the concept of prediction models perhaps in uh, COVID-19 or maybe Carl's suggesting for life in general. <laughs> <laughs> so another thing that's been rumbling on and you might have if you've looked at the BMJ social media scene calls for proper PPE is actually defining what proper PPE is, and that's where we should be looking at the evidence. Now, Helen, you've put face masks on the agenda for this week. Why did you choose face masks over all the other kind of PPE? Have you got some new evidence or, or, or is no, that No, it was something that caught my eye, really. I, I think, well, I think the whole issue of face masks and other physical barriers to protect against transmission of COVID-19 just seems to continue um, with lots of questions. Should the public wear face masks? What face masks and other protective equipment do healthcare workers need? And and which masks or which items are most suitable for which activities? And there's a piece just out in the BMJ headed by a team of international clinical authors, Manuel Schmidt and Trisha Greenhouge, 
about moving from the evidence on Mars or uncertainty around that evidence towards making policy. And they are talking about public use. But I think some of the principles that they mention in their piece could be useful in considering um, recommendations for other settings. So just purely looking at the evidence, they say that there are no trials on face masks and COVID so far, which is maybe not surprising. But there is evidence from trials and observational studies on masks and other barriers in influenza-like illnesses, so some indirect evidence, um, and systematic reviews of those, including two new ones that are up on the BMJ's preprint server, suggest that there are few clear answers. That's shortcutting an awful lot of um, data that's that's in those studies. Um, many of the included studies have got um, some design limitations. There are wide confidence intervals um, and there are varying answers from trials and observational data. But what I found interesting in um, Trisha's piece is developing the thoughts around some of the other considerations that you might take into account when building recommendations um, for particular groups of people. So there are some practical issues. For example, trials have shown that people don't often wear masks properly or consistently. But does that apply now? The public are obviously quite fearful of coronavirus and um, in some areas of the world, particularly in areas of Asia, um, the public have become very accustomed to wearing masks for other reasons, whether that be infection or for protection against pollution. Another consideration for COVID has been that people are infectious. We know that people are infectious before they get symptoms. Some people have very minimal symptoms or no symptoms at all. And so masks might have some use when people don't know that they're unwell. But on the flip side, there could be some harms in the public using masks. So in particular, they mentioned that if you uh, start wearing a mask, you might start to feel sort of invincible and start to flout other infection control measures, which we know work like hand washing um, or decide to ignore government advice on social distancing. And a, and a final sort of resource constraint has been perhaps that the public shouldn't wear masks because healthcare professionals sort of need them more and we don't have enough of them to go around. But the central point the article makes is that the precautionary principle might be useful to us in considering whether there should be a recommendation or a sort of case advance that the public could be advised to use uh, masks in COVID-19. And the idea of that is, is that basically in the face of uncertainty, um, you could err on the side of caution. And they believe that policymakers should apply this precautionary principle and encourage people to wear face masks on the grounds that they have little to use and potentially something to gain. Um, and the main harms, the flouting of infection rules and ramping up of mass production for healthcare workers could be solved. So I thought that was quite an interesting take on uh, on a debate that's been rumbling on in various forms for, for some time. Look, this is such a complex issue. It's really quite interesting. I'm, I, I have slight issues with the precautionary principle because... I get it when you have an environmental exposure where you're clear there's a potential harm. So, for instance, you might consider there's some toxic element that you're putting into drinks and you're not quite sure, so the precautionary principle says don't put it in there. Whereas this is about an actual intervention that you may or may not do. And I think that's different. And you have to be clear that there's a harm that will occur if you don't do the intervention. And that's not yet well understood there's a harm if you don't wear a mask you're saying well i'm not i'm saying if you do do or don't wear a mask where you're outside it's not clear yet 
whether that will have an impact on you or yourself. The most important aspect here about masks is, is this issue about when people have infection. And where this disease is really sneaky is, there's a prodromal phase where some people are pre-symptomatic, and there's also a phase where some people are virtually asymptomatic or have no symptoms at all. So the problem there is they can go around their normal life infecting other people. Remembering they can put it on surfaces. It's not just they're wearing a mask, they can put it on surfaces. So to me, the precautionary principle says that what you really want to do is do what they're doing in South Korea. Ensure there's proper testing for people who think I might have a disease who then have to be isolated and contact trace. That's, that would be my predominant strategy. With the masks, I think it's a very interesting issue. And what we're considering here is not just for COVID, for all respiratory infections, should we have a duty not to infect other people? Because I am guilty of this, and I'm sure everybody else is, of going into work, giving myself a few paracetamol and carrying on, despite I'm spluttering a bit and coughing a bit. And actually, do we all have a duty at that point to recognise we should be staying out of the public? And this is the people in, the, in Japan and in the, in the Far East. When they are infected, they have a duty. They feel they have a duty because they're much more paranoid about it to prevent infection. So wearing a mask means they're not giving anything out to other people. My point about the evidence is I think what's happening here is it's, it's uncertain. And by presenting it, the media is presenting it to people and what you're seeing when you're outside is people making their own decisions about what they should do. If you're an arrest person, you might consider, I wear a mask. The flip side is if you're not a risk person, when you see you go to the shops, they're not wearing masks. But my concern is when I go to the shops is there's no station for me to wash my hands. When I go to the petrol station, where can I wash my hands? All of that's missing in the architecture. So if you think you're just going to stick a mask on me and that's going to give me the solution, the evidence is not telling us that. But I do think we could have an overarching strategy. And my final point, sorry for going on this, is we should be testing some of these things. You made a really interesting point, Carl, when we were talking about this before, just the types of trials that are going on, the explosion of trials that we've seen in COVID-19 and the number that are on drugs versus the number that are on things like masks or non-drug trials. I think you should tell us about that. Well, that's a very interesting. There's been a lot this week, hasn't there? There's been a lot of stress about we've got a lockdown. Some people are not performing and doing what they should. They're going out too often or they're meeting in groups. Therefore, the next step is to have a permanent lockdown where you stop people exercising. And we've looked at the evidence for this. And there's a Cochrane review that's been updated. There's an observational study. It's very clear exercise is good for you in terms of your general health and in terms of preventing comorbidities. So that's established. Therefore, we don't want people to stop exercising, do we? But the problem is when you start to look at it in acute respiratory infections, there are some trials, but they're underpowered. They tend to show you actually a direction of trend that it reduces the duration of illness. However, this is a perfect opportunity to do them studies in areas like in France where they're saying no exercise. You could actually go, we're going to do some trials here. We're going to actually do the work and the research that we need. But the problem is when you go to the trial register, it's all about drugs, all about in vivo studies. It's all about prediction rules, diagnostics. Very few studies on 
non-drug interventions. So right now, we need people to switch on and go, where's the behavioural interventions? Where's these interventions where we can test some of these issues? Let's get on with it. The problem is the clock's ticking. It will take time to set them up and we may have missed the boat again. I think that's a good place to end it on. And again, that is the problem that we've seen with a lot of things in uh, evidence-based medicine, uh, like cardiovascular prevention and things as well. So um, that seems to be the takeaway from uh, from this, is that uh, yeah, COVID is, is just all of evidence in a, in a microcosm. So that's it for this episode of Talk Evidence. Thank you very much for listening to us. If you have anything you would like us to cover, then do get in touch. You can find all the details on bmj.com slash podcasts, and we will do our best to answer those questions for you. So next week, there's a potential that in the UK we will have at least reached the peak of infection. Things might have started to go down, fingers crossed, by then, which will be a good time for us to look at what that death rate has told us. Can we interrogate the evidence underneath it and what are the big questions that we need to answer going forward? So if you haven't, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from so you can listen to Helen and Carl talk about that. So until next week, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Take care.